Best tink in the biz. All right, we were talking about sobriety, which I certainly am not right now. Right. Uh, I, I mean, I have plenty of fucking. I was a drunk idiot guy. One time I was at a fancy upscale friend of a friend's place. Wasted as fuck again. And uh, it was like a nice, like, condo that they had. And uh, I was there, you know, like, they're like, oh, dude, this is Steve. He's our buddy. He's fun to hang around. He's just all good. And I got there and I went into their bathroom and, like, vomited, sprayed all over <laughs> oh the toilet, God. like, down the side of it, oh. on the carpet and everything. And then walked out and was like, all right, guys, we gotta go. It's been nice meeting you. And then I just walked outside <laughs> and, like, laid in a bush for an hour. <laughs> <laughs> until, until the guy, the, the girlfriend of the host came down and was like, what the fuck did you do to the bathroom? I'm like, we left. You can't do nothing about it. We, you and yourself. Just me. Just me. My ride wasn't leaving. They were like, ooh, we're going to have fun, even though he destroyed the bathroom. <laughs> oh, my God. Wow. You didn't even try to clean it up. I, I didn't have wherewithal. I didn't know anything. I was so embarrassed that this happened because I was like, oh, I got to puke. But I wasn't expecting it to, like spray out like a radius. Did you not open the seat? No, I, I don't even think I crouched down. I just went and fucking doused everything with Cheetos or whatever I ate. All your DNA sprayed. Oh man. Uh, oh. And your Doritos. There was that. There was one time we played uh, beer pong but we had Captain Morgan in oh, the cups. Yeah. And I was drinking Ew. Camo XXX tall what cans. I, for a while, I had a thing for horrible <laughs> liquor. So, like, Colt 45, King Cobra 40 ounces. Some bullshit. Yeah, I, I thought bullshit. I was tough by drinking this shit. No, oh it was just very unpleasant to be around. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no way. I don't like malt liquor. It does not go with my self. I don't. Mm-hmm. I can't Hell do it. no. I don't like no 40s. That shit tastes like piss. Yeah. And when it's warm, yeah. ew, even warm piss. Even like when it's Miller, it's still it's like ooh. Uh, one time I had a, a buddy that went to Europe and he went to Holland and he bought a bottle of absinthe and mailed nice. it back to me and it was like a traditional like wormwood recipe kind nice. of thing. And uh, so me and uh, my cousin's husband, who I think they were just dating then, and uh, one of his buddies, we meet up in Conquer somewhere. And, uh, like, you're supposed to prepare absinthe by... It's supposed to be, like, incredibly chilled, like Jägermeister, right? And you're supposed to pour it over a sugar cube to kind of cut out some of the bitterness and, like, with water and stuff. And, like, they have special absinthe tools that you use. You light the sugar on fire and then... This shit sat in my car in the sun for two days. Then we poured it into fucking (laughs) oversized wine glasses and shot it. What? And uh, it was funny. I, I fucking choked it down and I thought to myself... There is no, like there. I don't hate myself enough to drink this like regularly, and then the cousin's husband put it in, and it just came right back out. And then he thanked me for it, and I was like, "That's pretty nice. Like I gave you something that made you throw up. Like your body reacted as if it was Drano." <laughs> oh and then my! He thanked me for it. Oh hell no! Well, I had it at a bar here in the Mission years ago when it became legal or whatever here. And some absinthe company was having a party, and they were like twelve dollars a piece, and they were doing it with all their sugar and all yeah. their shit, and blah blah. And I'm like, twelve bucks, Jesus, it's not worth that much to me. I think Marilyn Manson got into the absinthe market for like a little while. He had his own absinthe. We used to have absinthe at the bar that I worked at in Chicago, and we used to do it the classic way, like that. It was really fun. It was. But- it was. 
C.S. Lewis was really big on that shit when he was doing the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, I think. Wow. I think that's how I had first encountered it, was looking at his Wikipedia page. That's cool. Yeah. Because C.S. Lewis was super Christian. Anyway, (laughs) we don't have to get into that today. (laughs) Wind it down here on the botanical bash. (laughs) Jesus wasn't sober. He loved wine. Yeah, exactly. He was a good dude. Yeah, he liked wine, man. We should say something about David Bowie and stuff. Yeah. You were sad about Oh, it. yeah, dude. I, I cried like a little baby you for cried? about a day. Oh, yeah, oh. dude. I, uh, he's like, like my, he's one of my favorite heroes. Really? He was, yeah. My aunt took me to go see him with Nine Inch Nails when I was 14 at Riverport Amphitheater in St. Oh, Louis. Oh, shit. <laughs> now it's like fucking Old Navy Fun Zone or something. <laughs> Some corporation bought it. Of course. Of course they did. This is in St. Louis, by the way. And it, like, changed my life. It really did. It was really, it's really was weird. Was Bowie like, headlining? Uh, he yeah, it was the outside, been, right? it was the outside tour. Outside lands? No, outside tour. Oh, outside tour. His album, the tour. Oh, yes, oh okay. Yes, yes. I see where you're and it was just, about. the it, opening band was just it was, awesome, too. It was just, yeah, it was really, a, like, one of those experiences, like, when you see one of your favorite artists and you're just, like, frozen, it was like that, you know? And I have everything by him, everything. And I, I keep spinning around in this chair, so. <laughs> um, but like, you know. I'm sorry for your loss then. Yeah, everyone, everyone's been like saying that to me, like I knew him. But it's weird, like I, I've been reading some like the feeds and stuff and like, I'm not the only asshole that feels that way, so. No, yeah. th- actually I've been really surprised about the reaction to his loss because like, you know, we, Lemmy just died and uh, Scott Weiland just died, but like, there hasn't been the outpouring of yeah. emotions. Natalie like Cole fans. No, Where Natalie are they? Cole. Yeah. But I, I feel like a lot more females were into David Bowie than they were necessarily like Lemmy or Scott Weiland. So I don't yeah. know if that has it. Like, it seems I, like they, it helped someone through some sort of time or something. It or? Did, it, it, well, if you know, the thing is, it's just like it, you know his artistry, his artistry of things too. You know, and what he did. You know, and not even just in the music, but in art form and politically, you know, you know, he was talking about uh, he came out on MTV what back in 1983 and he asked him why they didn't play black videos. And there's an old clip of it, too, that's been posted really? all over like the place. Yeah, oh, yeah. And then, you know, even with like, you know, saying that he was bisexual when it was like such a, at a time when it wasn't acceptable to do, even be that or come out or play with it. You know, that's that's something to think about. You know, androgyny. You know, that's an art form. You know. You know. I um, you know a lot of my boyfriends used to wear eyeliner, so. There you go. <laughs> you know, there I go. You know, so. It feels like during that time period, though, there was more of like a, like pre-internet, there was more of like a mythology built around stuff because it was like there was no like endless database of information that you could just you know punch in and stuff so it's like someone would tell you like oh man yeah did you hear fucking david bowie and trent reznor (laughs) hooking up or like you'd hear all kinds of weird shit like that and that's just like all just gone yeah it's it's like uh it's like playing telephone yeah 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 but in some way i think that's like how like legends and like urban legend kind of people 
came up. I don't think I think those are kind of over. I don't think you're gonna have that anymore. No, I think Bill Murray's the last dude, one. And you're just talking about well, Lemmy. He could show up at the bar anywhere. Yeah, anytime. and you were talking about Lemmy. Up. He used to always hang out at the Rainbow Club in Hollywood. Yeah. You know, you could just go there and you'll run into him. Yeah. You know? But it's but, like you don't. There's no. Everyone now is a brand. Yeah. Oh, yes. This is yes. The brand. What's your logo for your brand? <laughs> it's not about the music. It's about yeah. How many yeah. cokes can you sell? And not even music. It's just it's all all artists now. Everyone's. And the funny thing about that is David Bowie hated that period of his life when he was doing that. You know, you know when he was you know when he sold out. He says he hated that period. He's just like soundtrack okay. for Pretty Woman in 1990. Is that what we're talking about? No, no, he didn't do that. <laughs> no, he was. He was on it. Bang. That's that song was on the. Was that on the Pretty Woman? It was Woman on song? the Pretty Woman soundtrack. I had it. Oh, on the tape. remake. Oh, the remake. The the the, the, the 1991. Yeah, yeah you're right. With, with, That's right. I forgot about Julia that Julia Roberts. With Julia Roberts, oh, yeah. That movie's stupid. I fucking it's, hate it, that movie. Yeah, well, the myths that we perpetuate. Gosh. But anyway. Um, yeah, yeah, David Bowie. Yeah. And, I, you know, during the time, like, with, like, uh, Let's Dance and all that, oh, uh-huh. you know, when he was always, like, always on MTV and trying to sell stuff. And, you know, he said he hated that period. You know, he wasn't creative. Right. You know? Manufacturing. Right. He wasn't creative, so he stopped doing it. But you see I so mean, many... I the opportunity the... to have money would be so... But, but once you have but, that money, then you're not worried about it anymore. Then you almost... You know, but the thing is, like, in order to do it, you have to tap dance and shuffle and act like a fool and yeah. sell your soul to somebody. Play the clown. Yeah. <laughs> dance monkey. You know... Dance magic, dance. <laughs> <laughs> you... Move magic, move. <laughs> <laughs> I, like the, I can't do the I can't do the rap part. It's a double with the baby, but the bull. <laughs> that sounds pretty accurate. Yes, MC Pam. <laughs> that was a good song. But I mean, yeah, you were talking about how everything is a brand, and it's just like, and even the brand isn't even an art form. It's just like you don't even try. Yeah. It's just boring. It's excuses to get untalented people involved with talented people. Like, I'll run your social networks and your Twitter feeds. <laughs> I'll just put out your stuff for you. Exactly. Well, if you do have somebody working like eight hours a day to try to promote you, things, something has to happen somewhere, doesn't it? I mean, it's it's the classic thing of, you know, if you slap the Tide logo in front of enough people's faces so many times, they're going to just be programmed to buy Tide. Mm-hmm. I think that's information that we got from the Nazis with their, like, propaganda <laughs> and shit. That's what, that's what I think of all of our marketing. All of our marketing is backed from uh, Hitler how he was able to brainwash a country and the United States was like, dude, we're capitalists. Write this shit down. Right. <laughs> yeah. We're going to sell fucking teddy bears with this shit. Yep. Well, uh, I'm just... Uh, I don't, don't want to get political. I just don't want to... But uh, I was talking with some comedians and Jonathan the other night and and some of the guys from FTW too, Forever Two Wheels, Mondays, 8 to 10. And we're outside talking about like socialism and why it doesn't work and blah, blah, blah. and I said the problem is that we in our country or in our society we don't value work equally and I think that work whether it's digging a ditch or building something or taking care of someone or taking care of a baby or writing a story or whatever okay all of that is work and all of that work should be equally valued across the board yeah. and and then the and Ian Levy was like well, let me play devil's advocate. Uh, 
what's the incentive for people to want to be doctors and all that stuff? And I'm like, well, if all the education's free and you can do whatever you want and all of your work is valued the same, then you can do whatever you want to do. You just have to work at something. And it'll eventually work out because people will want to be doctors and people will want to be lawyers and it'll all, it's just socialism. You just don't, just all work is valued the same. But people can't do that. They're like, well, the people that make my clothes, the Bangladeshi, there needs to be less. Or, like, we're all people, and everybody can give their skills equally, and I, it bothers me that some people's work, which is harder than ours, is valued, like, so less. Yeah, but then that would get boring. <laughs> you wouldn't have anyone to fight and cuss about. <laughs> well, but wouldn't it be better if instead of spending time fighting and cussing, we all found ways to, like build together and I sound like <laughs> There's a no, boo-danical. <laughs> if we just sat around and looked at rainbows and petted our dogs and, you know, fed each other's cats, this we could make this happen. Yeah. No, there's, there's people things. genetically that are just cunts. And that's because yes. of those people. And as we get more people on this planet, we get more cunts, all right? Our yeah. cunt levels are rising and skyrocketing through the, the stock market's the crashing, the cunt market's rising. <laughs> And we need to, I think we should give everyone a three foot by like inch and a half stick. And if someone fucks with you bad enough and you have the capabilities to hit them with your stick, you should be able to hit them with the stick. <laughs> and you know, if, they, if they're somewhere else and you know, they're away from you and they can't interfere, then you can't hit them with your stick. So you can't give them, you know, I'm just saying if we all just hit each other with sticks, <laughs> I think we could get to the bottom of the cunt market issue. Uh, you know, I, I do kind of agree with you a little bit in that. Take there a are, swing. Well, there have been times where there, I, well, for it to be acceptable for me, and, and metaphorically speaking, to be able to be like, to tell someone when they're being a cunt, to be like, you know, I wouldn't want to use like the literal stick, but if you could like actually be honest with people and they would take it and you would say like, wow, you are really being a cunt right now. <laughs> And they were like, oh, I can take that feedback in some way. Oh, no, that's, that's not going to happen. Change. No one, no one wants no. to hear that they're a cunt <laughs> unless they're at the rock bottom. No one wants to. We're putting feminism back like five to seven years. But we're pushing comedy forward, I feel like, at least six to seven months. Anything, <laughs> anything where it's just about one person or one group getting better shit, I'm, I'm, I feel like you're like... It's like almost like a reverse racism. Like, it's not like these people should get more of this. It's like all people should be at this level. And if they're not at this level, we need to, you know, make sure they get up to that level. Not like, oh, I'm a female, so I'm supreme ruler of the universe because I cut my hair short and I've got a mustache. Like, that's not, I don't enjoy that kind of feminism. I don't support those people. All right, you can blow your ethnicity out your assholes. Fair enough. I got nothing on that one. I got nothing. <laughs> See, if we had a stick, maybe we could push the back. <laughs> we could figure it out. Uh, if you guys come down to the studio on 21st and Florida, 2781 21st Street, there's this really kind of cool, weird, new art thing up, and it's all of these labor um, heroes from the world. Uh, I, uh, some of them I didn't know who they are, and, but they're all these little explanations, and they're written by uh, Bill Morgan, who is the bee on Saturdays from 10 to noon, and his show is called Labor and Love, and it's all about like 
labor issues and communism and stuff. Dude, it's really sad to come down here and read these things and see the kind of shit that someone had to sacrifice their life in order to achieve. It, it's like... And we take it for Harry granted. Harry Bridges was gunned down because he said he should have a 15 minute break. It's like, oh <laughs> yeah, my well, god, man, that yeah. shit was fucking like it was borderline slavery, basically. Like there was not really work; it was just rich people and dumb fucks who put widgets together. And yeah, yeah. all the child labor laws, all that stuff. Like, dude, it is really crazy. Little fingers, deft work. And you know what's weird is you would think coming down here and reading this stuff would inspire you. Because all these people's messages were so admirable and noble, but they all got executed. So yeah. you're just like, oh, we're we're just an evil set of creatures, is what we are. <laughs> Solar flare. Let's knock out the electricity and start over. Well, that's I think the we thing. take it for granted. I really do. I think yeah. we really take it for granted, and people don't realize like these people, you know, what they did for us, and then you know, we're just all on our iPhones. Martin tap, Luther tap, King tap, Day. Tap, See, tap, and tap, I, tap. I have a theory on that. You know, like, when you think in the terms of video games, when video games went from, like, Pong to, like, Atari Pac-Man, right? And, like, we've known about those. We've played them, and we've seen everything develop. But now there's kids that come out, and the first video game they play is Call of Duty 8, where they're stabbing people in the face. and you know. But it's like, that's their video game, and they don't appreciate the other stuff necessarily, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. You brought it back to video games. Dude, it's all about the Mario Bros. But the thing is, I'm balanced because I still appreciate my Atari. Mm, I got Nintendo 64 like a whore. <laughs> oh, yeah. Aww. I almost bought like those like stupid fake uh, Ataris like at Bed Bath & Beyond. Oh, where they give you like, a certain amount of games yeah. and like, a joystick? I almost got it, and I'm like, this isn't real. This is fake. Thrift stores. That's exactly. And every time when I go to a thrift store, I, I, I don't ever see one. I used to see them all the time. You got to pounce quickly, man. Yeah. You got to wait for the stars to twinkle, the sun to line up in the right shade, Mars waiting. to be in retrograde, and then, you know, you can stumble across a find. I will one day. I will have my Atari back. I was the never, I've never been a video game player. Oh, yeah. I've I, never been. It's just never. Nintendo and Super NES. Oh, man. I remember the Return of the Jedi game for Super NES. I still want to play that game. I might go home and download an emulator <laughs> so I can play that later. I just, I can't even conceptualize because I was never good at them. I just, I don't have hand-eye coordination. No one ever is. No. You must learn. First of all. No, I don't have that kind of time. Come you on, know, Skywalker. Listen, I used so to play Super, things I'd want to do. I used to play Super Mario Brothers for hours, and still to this day, I cannot get the princess, but I still try. Yeah, you still try. I still try. And people make fun of me that the fact that I still can't get to the princess princess well you know what if I, there was a nintendo in front of me i would still keep trying and i would do it for hours i swear it's not about getting the princess it's <laughs> about trying to get the it's princess. still trying and that's on the first super mario ladies and gentlemen that's sad yeah i i just had to break it down with my date i was like you know uh you know we've been talking for a while and i just gotta know you know how do you feel about nintendo 64 <laughs> you know spit out your feelings now because they're gonna come to light if you try to hide them <laughs> Oh, yeah. I just uh, I've never I'm never cared about video games, but I don't despise them. I mean, I've watched a lot of them, but I'll usually just read a book <laughs> while like if, if he wants to play video games, I'll read a book. Yeah, I like to read books. I, I like books, but I I mean I'm an old school gamer. Yeah, I'm old school. I stop. Give me myself. cartridges or give me death. Exactly. I'm I'm one of those. So and I lost everything after 1997. So. 
that's, yeah. I, I just never experienced any modicum of success playing the games, and so I think I gave up so quickly because I just... Determination. Dude, interactive story, man. You gotta earn your story. You gotta get all the flowers, you gotta get the sunshine rays and the fucking blue flute. And Otherwise, the, you don't find out what happens to Jerry. <laughs> it's like you're... I have no idea what you're talking about. Well, see, that's like me and Pete, we play video games, but I'm the kind of person where I play video games, I immediately set it on the hardest difficulty setting possible, and then, like, let's, let's fucking play, son. Let's get some skill going, where he's, like, you know, he's putting in God mode codes and shit, and he's cheating and stuff. <laughs> I can't play with you, bro. I can't play. He's talking about, like, some of the uh, secret moves and shit, and, you know. Yeah. Yeah. The hidden, the hidden shit that nobody else knows. You gotta push it real good. Yeah. Dude, <laughs> what you gotta do is you gotta get yourself some boot tentacles. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, get yourself a Nintendo 64. No, Nintendo. And a 64. bottle of water because you're not drinking. And then you gotta get in there and you gotta hammer out Legend of Zelda. They just had a thing. Legend, oh, I a love blind Zelda. guy beat Zelda for Nintendo 64. No way. It took him five years, but he beat it just based off of audio cues of like. The guys like as they run along, and then you know the monster making a noise. That's, That's insane. Insane. And I guess he live broadcasted himself trying this. So it's so weird to see someone playing a video game and they're not facing the screen. Like it's like his left ear is like lining up to the screen, and he's just working the controller, listening. Oh, damn. It's fucking trippy, man. With that. Uh, this has been the AltaCast here on MutinyRadio.fm. Took us in a weird direction at the end there with the... Uh, video games. Yeah. With the video games. If but you're not Alta, like, you're not trying hard enough. If you're not Alta, you're... Uh, I'm definitely on that. Uh, thank you guys for joining us here on the AltaCast. Um, I'm Pam Benjamin. I've been joined by LaToya, the Sheriff of Truth Win, and Steve Poggi. Old dumb face. <laughs> That's my that's my radio name now. Old <laughs> face. Uh, if you want to see us later, we'll be at the SF Eagle doing open mic performance comedy. It'll be hilarious. Uh, otherwise, you can always stop by here on Fridays for Bam Tess's Comedy Clubhouse, or earlier than that for Happy Hour if you want to get a set in. If you're so inclined to that sort of persuasion. Yeah. Um, other and I'll than be that, here in February. Or I'll You're be at the here like February. all the time. There's, <laughs> I mean, there's the just look on Facebook. Please just come here on Fridays and Saturdays. I'm like now. I feel like I'm begging them. It's a party. It's a party. It's, it's a party. there's great comedians. Okay, bye. <laughs>
because I'm so excited by this that I may never sleep again. And it sounds like you, Alex, may want to check out the number 4AltaCalifornia.com. That's 4AltaCalifornia.com for a non-addictive pharmaceutical free alternative to smoking medical marijuana. Check them out today at number 4AltaCalifornia.com. Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of MutinyRadio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-face McRat. <laughs> Yeah, you. You look like the kind of person who has a sense of humor. Uh, is the radio talking to me? No, I'm on an internet podcast. Uh, I'm talking to an internet podcast? Don't be silly. It's a one-way form of communication. But I don't want you to miss out on the Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival 2016 from March 2nd through 6th. And you don't have to. You can buy tickets now on universe.com with 24 national and international visiting comedians and 20 local hosts. You won't want to miss a thing. What if I can't be at every show? Don't worry. All shows will be available for free download at mutinyradio.fm until the internet falls apart. Oh, podcast God, I can't wait to listen to all these great comedy shows and everything else that's cool and muniradio.fm before the internet falls apart. You too won't want to miss a bit of the Mutiny Radio Comedy Festival from March 2nd through 6th, 2016. Buy tickets now. Brought to you by Subliminal SF, PBR, The Eagle SF, Brainwash Cafe, Asiento, and the great people at Alta California Botanicals. Have you heard of Subliminal SF? Visual and auditory mind control. Graphic design, physical merchandise, live music promotions. Go! www.subliminalsf.com for the most amazing t-shirts you've ever seen. Graphic design for every need and live music promotion at some of the best bars in San Francisco. That's Subliminal SF, visual and auditory mind control. Go to subliminalsf.com now.
Good evening there, my friends here at MutinyRadio.fm. Chester Cashcock here, and giving you my love and regard as well as movies over there. And uh, I just wanted to let you guys know that anytime I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and piles and piles of filthy cash, I can't help but listen to Pamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. I mean, if anyone who knows anything about comedy knows that Pamtastic's books the best of San Francisco and Beyond's underground comics. It's a great showcase, and they have a fun time at Pamtastic's Deep in the Mission District, where you can laugh off your tushy for a mere five dollars every Friday to 10 p.m. And I laugh because five dollars, I mean, that's what I use to wipe my tushy with. So to laugh it off for a mere five dollars is indubitious. But if you can't make it to Mutiny Radio, well, don't even worry. Don't fret at all. You can simply download the podcast post-show and giggle in the comfort of anywhere, like your Aspen summer home on the mountain ridge with the kayak feeling. So then all you got to do is just go to podcastics.pcrcollective.org slash comedy clubhouse, or you can listen live every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. as your host Pam Benjamin brings you the best comedy from San Francisco and beyond the universe. And what's better than the universe? <laughs> it's a cash cock, honey. <laughs> You ever want to be funny? Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be, like, in front of an audience? Like, other than, like, squirrels, dogs, and dead persons? Oh, shoot. From time to time, I've been giving it a thought of two. You know, if you go to joke workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes? And they'll even say nice things to you before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dag nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Yahoo! 499. The dictionary definition of the adjective eclectic is selecting or choosing from various sources. When Bay Area musician J.D. Buell brings you Morning Train Wednesday, 10 a.m. to noon on Mutiny Radio, that is exactly what he does. Select music from various sources to give you a unique listening experience. Rock, pop, jazz, bluegrass, gospel, funk, reggae, folk, blues, country and western, electronica, soul, disco, rhythm and blues, punk and post-punk. Come together with music from around the world with Buell's passionate and down-to-earth delivery. In an age of personal music delivery systems, J.D. Buell carries on the values of progressive FM radio when a listener could actually have a relationship with a programmer, someone who would create an eclectic musical environment wherein both listener and host find fulfillment. The Morning Train with J.D. Buell, Wednesday, 10 to noon on mutinyradio.fm. Freeform radio for free minds.
Did you know that compact fluorescent light bulbs use 60% less energy than regular light bulbs? And that each one saves about 300 pounds of carbon dioxide a year. If all Americans switched to CFLs, we would save more than 90 billion pounds of carbon dioxide. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Muni Radio in San Francisco. People from all over the Bay Area come to the Lindsay Wildlife Museum to experience close encounters with live wild animals. The museum's living collection features more than 50 species of non-releasable native California animals. Visitors can see and learn about wildlife such as eagles, owls, bobcats, coyotes, reptiles, and other fascinating creatures. The museum's world-renowned Wildlife Rehabilitation Hospital treats more than 5,000 wild animals each year with the goal of returning them to their native habitat. The Lindsay Wildlife Museum is in Walnut Creek. To learn more, visit wildlife-museum.org. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio in San Francisco. Safe sex is more than just avoiding STIs and pregnancy, no matter what you're into. Make sure that you and those around you feel safe, comfortable, and are having a good time. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio. Meals on Wheels is dedicated to fostering independent living for San Francisco seniors by providing hot, nutritious meals delivered to their homes. They're committed to fostering independent living for as long as possible. For more information, please call Meals on Wheels at 415-920-1111. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio in San Francisco. Welcome to the Think Grow Love Radio podcast, where it's all about women coaches, freelancers, and creatives growing their businesses online while balancing their family and personal lifestyle. Hey, everybody. Yehudit Steinberg here, and thank you so much for joining me here today for another episode of Think Grow Love Radio. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming on. We're so happy to have you join us. What we do here. Let's watch a full-length movie on YouTube with Mike Spiegelman. Let's watch a full-length movie on YouTube with Mike Spiegelman. You can watch if you want to. You can slap Spiegelman's behind. L-W-A-F-L-M-N-O-Y-T on Mutiny Radio. Mutiny. Mutiny. 
It's pronounced mutiny. Mutiny! No, it's, it's pronounced mutiny. Mutiny! Oh, my turn-offs are guys who say mutiny. Mutiny? Well, let's watch a full-length movie on YouTube with Mike Spiegelman. Mike Spiegelman. Oh, Mike Spiegelman. Mike Spiegelman. Mike Spiegelman! Hey! Mike Spiegelman! Mike Spiegelman! Mike Spiegelman! Hey, distinguished guests, welcome to LWA FLM OIT. Let's watch a full length movie on YouTube with Mike Spiegelman and Carl. Hi, Carl. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me once again, ready to talk about this year. Well, my God. Well, this is our special year end show. First off, Carl. I haven't seen you all year. Yeah, I haven't seen you since last year. It's been yeah. that long. You said I was going to see you next year, and I'm like, geez. Uh, well, <laughs> we're back. Last week, we had a special show. Our show, welcome. Our show is, uh, we watch a full-length movie on YouTube and uh, at the same, in real time, and you watch the movie with us and listen to the podcast at the same time. We are on mutinyradio.fm. First and foremost, every Sunday, 2 p.m., what a fantastic internet radio station it is. A lot of great shows, stationed by none other than Pam Benjamin, who was our celebrity comedian last week. That was, that was a really good interview. A couple weeks ago, Carl. It was uh, a couple I, weeks ago. Carl, uh, my name is Mike Spiegelman. I'm here with Carl. Carl wrote the theme song. Carl, gosh, Carl, you did everything, including interview Pam, and it was a good interview. I never, yeah. I don't know those interviews, so I listened to it on the show myself. We are very excited. We did this last year. We're going to do this again. So last year in 2021, we saw, I don't know, 50 movies. And these are all movies that are available on YouTube. If you go to our archive, which is on mutinyradio.fm, we are part of iTunes. Huh? How did we pull that off? But you'll notice our shows, like most Mutiny Radio shows, are listed by the date it airs on Mutiny Radio. It doesn't give you a heads up which movie is happening. So this is kind of a primer. We're going to tell you the movies. Yeah. Because we watched a lot of great movies, a lot of variety movies, uh, a lot of movies. Yeah. And uh, we want to uh, celebrate, just talk about it, and then uh, just let you know, like, if you're interested in this movie, you could watch it on YouTube. If you're interested in us and the podcast, we will tell you the date. And actually, we're going to, at the end of the show, probably list them. So, but yeah. speaking of it, so this is going to be a big show. So let's get started, Carl. January 3, 2021, we were watching Playing for Keeps. I had to ask you before the show, what the hell was that movie? And then, yeah. unfortunately, you told me the answer. Yeah, it's Harvey Weinstein. It was written and directed by the brothers, Bob and Harvey Weinstein. Bob and Harvey Weinstein. And it was Miramax, but it was at the time of Miramax before they were bought by Disney and became a mega. I mean, they were. Oh, they were it's before a lot of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I read a biography on uh, on Miramax, uh, and it was none of the sexual stuff was kind of revealed in the book. But that was an early movie for them. And well, one of the earliest known episodes of sexual harassment by producer Harvey Weinstein happened during pre-production. And I remember talking to you about the story. You know, he uh, had some girl lured her with like, "You can be an actress in the film. You can audition." Got her to his hotel room and then wanted to take a bath with her. <laughs> Marissa Torme was in it, right? Yeah, she was great in it. So, I mean, she was in it. Yeah, she played her role. She did her job. Yeah. But also, there was Jimmy Bayo, who's the cousin of the actor Scott Bayo. 
And he was also in Bad News Bears uh, Spring Training. He was like the Italian. You remember Carmen? He was Carmen because they played the song Carmen. Yeah. Yeah. No relation to Scott Bale. I think cousin, right? Cousin. Yeah, he's yeah. a cousin. So look, what did you think of the film? Uh, it's a curio. Was, he got a lease, right? He was a nowhere kid. He got a lease for a rundown hotel. So he gets all his friends and they go clean it up and turn it right. into a... Yeah. Well, and this is not, this is one of two kids uh, redo a hotel bar type of uh, movie we saw in January. Uh, you know what? It, it's a trivia question and you have the opportunity to see it, uh, see some prisoners movie that he did. Bob, so, you know, it's a curiosity. Uh, moving forward, can we? On January 10th, we watched America 3000. Now, do we cover this? Because this was a repeat. With originally when that aired and aired about three years ago. Uh, it was garbled and uh, Carl cleaned it up. And just because it was the start of the year, we played that episode. So it's an old canon Golden Globus movie in the future. Yeah, uh, it's one of the 1980s, like post-apocalyptic film, like Escape from New York, Mad Max 2, The Road Warrior. So like B films cashed in on that. You know, you always see that stereotype of... I and four-minute critiques from everyone. Get positive, my host, Pam Benjamin. Pump those dick jokes every Thursday, 7 to 9, with True Hustle Thursdays. Hashtag THC. That's hashtag THC. Folks, if you're listening to MutinyRadio.fm, which you better be, this is uh, Labor and Love. Uh, Bill was not here, so I... I came by and played a little of uh, his stuff. So if you hear me coming in a little early, it's because there ain't no one here. Fly Black Plastic, coming back at noon.
and said, folks, would you bow your heads for a list of local Vietnam dead? Crying all alone under the stands was a piccolo player in the marching band and one named Red, and nobody really cared. But a pretty little girl with a bow Rock and roll addict, trancing on the stage. 
Bobby 
when we happen to be okay, had a James just, there and you know you got to serve somebody good morning everyone this is the B welcome to labor and love radio on mutiny radio and mutiny radio.fm Coming at you this morning from 2781 21st Street in the Meadow Meadow, the heart of the Mission District in San Francisco. This is the show where we tell you like it is. If one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table that is, wherever you work, You're probably on the menu. And never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. And when I say labor, I mean you. Good morning, everybody. We had uh, our opening set there. Started out, of course, with deportees. Deportees by the highwaymen. Highwaymen. None other than Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. Lead there on just deportees. Much more about that in a bit. We had then we had traveling soldier by the Dixie Chicks about to the fact that every day somewhere American troops are involved in wars. Every day. This is for those soldiers who are out there and also to get them back home. Wars where workers of one class shoot down workers of another class. Thin out the possibility of resistance to capitalism. And last we had Etta James. Queen of the Blues, gotta serve somebody. The Bob Dylan classic reminds us that yes, your indecision, your hesitation, serve someone. By just standing around, you're rushing backwards. Okay, now I remarked about that case. We're talking about that case of uh, deportees. This is, the song, of course, relates the fact that even though these people have come to the United States and worked, you know, they're uncelebrated. No one remembers them. Just barely their names, and other than that, they'll be just deportees. The song was written by Woody Guthrie and popularized by Pete Seeger. Since then, it's been recorded by virtually everybody. 
in the certainly in the country and western genre. Um, anyway, a, a Chicano writer named Tim Z. Hernandez decided that yeah, they get that what they wasn't want. Good enough. He wanted to go and find out who these people were. This is part of a uh, an interview on Latino USA on NPR. Here we go. 32 people on the plane, four Americans, including three crew members and an immigration official, and 28 migrant farm workers. Everyone died that morning, all in the same way. But they were not all treated the same after death. The 28 Mexican field workers on that plane were known as braceros. They had come here at the request of the U.S. government and were headed back to Mexico, but didn't make it. After the crash, only the remains of the four Americans were sent back to their families. The Mexican citizens were buried in a mass grave in California under a tiny plaque that read, 28 Mexican citizens who died in an airplane accident near Colinga, 28 Mexican citizens. That's all they would call them. And for decades, that's all there was. No one identified the remains of the 28 passengers. No one asked for their families. No one really paid attention. Until a Mexican-American author came along. And it became personal. From NPR and Futuro Media, this is Latino USA. I'm Fernanda Chavarri, guest hosting today's episode, where we go back 70 years to find out the names of those 28 unnamed people and find out how one man made it his life mission to give them names. And to do that, I'm joined by producer Maggie Freeling. Hi, Maggie. Hey, Fernanda. So when you and I found out about this incident that took place 70 years ago, we were talking about how these people were virtually forgotten. They were nameless in death and in the news. But the crash itself, it turns out that more people might know about it than they realize. Goodbye to my one, goodbye, Rosalina. Adios, mi amigos. And it's all because of one song that kept the story alive throughout the decades, a song that has a very long, confusing title. Deportee, parentheses, Plain Wreck at Los Gatos. And it's sung here by Pete Seeger, a super famous American folk music icon. 600 miles to that Mexico border. But Pete didn't write the song. He just made it famous in the 1950s. Pete's good friend Woody Guthrie wrote it. When Woody heard about the crash on the radio, he felt this strong sense of injustice. So he wrote his feelings down as a poem, and it later became the song. All these friends all scattered like dry leaves. Who are these friends who are scattered like dried leaves? The radio said they were just deportees. These kinds of poems and lyrics were not unusual for Woody Guthrie. He was always sort of a revolutionary. Woody was kind of the embodiment of your quote-unquote everyman in the sense that he lived and worked and wrote and traveled among the people. I'm Nora Guthrie, and I'm Woody Guthrie's daughter. 
We called Nora to find out why Woody wrote this. There was a very strong similarity between the migrant workers in the 1930s and the Okies in the 1930s. The Okies were farmers in Arkansas, Kansas, Tennessee, and of course, Oklahoma. They lost their homes during the Dust Bowl and migrated to California. Woody Guthrie was one of these people. When Woody came to California, he was homeless, living in tents and little tin shacks. And so were the Mexican field workers. <laughs> They're kind of all in the same boat. And I think that just instinctively, he connected with their plight. He didn't start out to be political. He started out just being curious. So he would always dig further and further uh, into the news reports. And that was what happened with the plane wreck at Los Gatos. Somewhere along the way, Pete Seeger, who was Woody's friend, got a hold of the poem, set it to music, and started singing it. Then the song got huge. It took on a life of its own and was covered by dozens of musicians. Johnny Cash, Johnny Rodriguez. The crops are all in and the peaches are rotten. rotten. Dolly Parton. The oranges are pie. Joan Baez. So Bob Dylan. Woody's son, Arlo Guthrie. So you have all these super famous all-American music icons singing about Mexican farm workers in the 1940s. And it's really crazy because this song was sung throughout the decades, and yet nobody bothered to find out who these people were. And my father left a lot of songs like this. Sometimes I call them like seeds to be harvested by the next generation. So the, the thing is that he left this song with the question, why weren't the deportees named? These were the words I kept sort of, I kept humming in my head. All they will call you will be deported. All they will call uh, I'm Tim Hernandez, and I'm the author who's been working on this plane wreck at Los Gatos for the last uh, seven years. And the name of your book is? The name of my book is All They Will Call You. So here's where Tim comes in. He's a professor and an author, so he's always sort of digging for stories. One day, Tim was doing research for something unrelated back in 2010 when he came across a newspaper article. And it said 100 people see an airplane fall out of the sky, ship plunge to earth, and, and it was a farm labor accident. So Tim was like, weird, that sounds familiar. And he realized that it was the same story as the one he knew from the song. And the same way that Woody Guthrie was bothered by the injustice decades ago, Tim, too, wanted resolution for the families of the victims. So Tim set off on a quest. You know, I just let my curiosity sort of pull me, and I began to ask, who is all, and who are they, and what do they call you? And, and that's uh, that's just what kept me going. That was a, a quest that over the years became more and more personal for Tim, as he saw the similarities between his life growing up in the Central Valley and the migrant farm workers who died that day. You know, growing up, the son of migrant farm workers, I saw firsthand the moments where my family uh, felt voiceless. And um, and I started to see them play out as I got older, not beyond my family. I'd see them play out in the broader community, you know. Tim put himself in the shoes of these 28 families and thought, this could have been me. 
This could have been my family. I was born and raised here in California's San Joaquin Valley, the agricultural hub here. Uh, my parents were actually migrant farm workers originally from South Texas and New Mexico. You know, kind of growing up with migrant family, uh, you know, we traveled a lot, quite a bit, working in different fields and different harvests um, throughout the year. And my parents did that pretty much, uh, you know, up until, I don't know, I was about maybe eight or nine. And although Tim's family didn't participate in the Bracero program, they did spend generations working the fields in Texas and California. Farming is America's biggest industry. All such farm jobs, which are tough, dirty, or unpleasant, are generally referred to as stoop labor. The Bracero program, to summarize, was a seasonal worker program that was a sort of amicable agreement between the U.S. and Mexico that went on from the early 40s to the mid-60s. At that time, the U.S. desperately needed workers to pick fruits and vegetables. It isn't easy to find men willing to take on such undesirable kinds of work. Understandably, then, the American farm labor supply falls short and is supplemented by Mexican citizens. So they gave Mexican farm workers temporary permits to come here and do the work. Millions of Mexican workers came and went. When the harvesting season was over and the U.S. government didn't need them anymore, they would send them back by train or fly them by plane. And that morning, that's exactly what was happening. Those 28 migrant workers were flying from San Francisco to El Centro, right on the border with Mexico, in a U.S. government chartered plane. So based on Tim's research and interviews with the families over the years, here's what happened after the crash. Officials recovered as many scattered body parts as they could. Then they formally notified the families of the four Americans and sent them caskets of pieced together remains, some as far as upstate New York. As for the Mexican passengers, the leftover body parts were also put in caskets, but they were not sent back to Mexico. They were buried in that mass grave we mentioned earlier. 14 on one side, 14 on the other, in Fresno, California. So the Mexican passengers' bodies were never repatriated. Some families in Mexico were notified by the Mexican government via letter. Others only heard about it on the radio. It's unclear exactly how each of the families found out, and if they even knew where their loved ones were buried. We reached out to the Mexican government officials at the embassy in D.C., but were denied an interview. Of course, we weren't going to find people working there who were working for the Mexican government 70 years ago, but we wanted to know how the government handled this. An official said via email that today their policy is to help families in Mexico find funeral homes and cremation services in the U.S. and that based on the family's financial need, the Mexican government can help them pay for part of the cost of getting their remains back to Mexico. We also wanted to know how only some of the victims of the crash ended up identified. So to find out, we flew to meet Tim Hernandez in California. This is all cattle territory up here. It's uh, Los Gatos Canyon. It's all ranchers. In fact, Larry's um, family were cattle ranchers up there. They correct. were correct. Okay. Oh my so, God, did you see the baby cows? I'm sorry. I know. <laughs> they were the cutest little baby cows. <laughs> did you see the big long horns earlier? Yes. Yeah. We're driving to Colinga about an hour southwest from Fresno with Tim and his friend Larry Hawes. Larry's a Harley-riding, leather-vest-wearing white guy. He's sort of Tim's sidekick and an unofficial historian of his own family, the family that owned the property where the plane crashed 70 years ago. It's hard. Every turn looks the same here, unless you know exactly where the crash happened. So then that's what prompted me to want to call, find Larry's, the Gaston family, so that I could 
identify exactly where it happened. I have to ask, what are we driving through? What is what is this? This is called the oil patch, and this is the Kalinga oil field, and uh, this is uh, Kalinga is actually Coline Station A. Oil was actually discovered here. And today, there's a whole bunch of industrial oil derricks covering a huge part of a barren desert area. The plane would have been able to see these oil derricks as it was coming in here this way. And because he had crash landed that airplane twice before, it, it makes sense that one could actually, you know, you could surmise from that that he was more than likely looking for a strip of dirt to land on. You know, there's nothing you could do. crash landed it twice? <laughs> that same exact airplane he had crash landed twice before. Okay, so it wasn't the exact plane, but the kind of plane, a Douglas DC-3, which back in the 30s and 40s was a pretty revolutionary plane. Frank Atkinson, the pilot, was used to flying and crash landing the DC-3. So he thought he could land that plane again. And he might have been able to, if all that was wrong was a plane malfunction. But... Plane wing broke off and it started spinning out of control and throwing people out. We're here? Yeah, we are. We're going through the barbed wire fence. I'm so short. This barely works. <laughs> This is the actual crash site, and this was where the main bodies were at, and dead people were everywhere right where we're standing. Larry wasn't born when the plane crashed, but growing up, he heard stories about that day and about how his family raced to the scene to help in any way they could. Larry's mom and his Aunt Jean were little girls at the time. His Aunt Jean was nine years old when she saw the wreckage and is the only surviving witness in Larry's family. June is standing you know, not too far off here looking at and I witnessing all this. June is turning 80 soon, and she still remembers it all in very graphic detail. So we called her to get her account of what happened. We saw bushes with brains hanging on it, and my thought then, as a little girl, that looks like decorating a Christmas tree. It was just all over with these brains. At the time, June didn't realize the impact this would have on her beyond the trauma of witnessing a crash. Do you remember as you got older learning more about it? I do remember because my mother was following it in the papers. And I remember her shortly after that saying, this has become an international incident because they've buried all of these uh, people together in a mass grave, then that really occurred to me how really terrible that was, that they were just demeaning these people because they weren't us. By leaving their name off, I finally came to see what an insult it was. Tim also felt like the 28 people who died that day were not treated humanely or equal to the families of the American passengers. So he wanted to right that wrong. Tim felt that these braceros were sort of invisible in life. And then in death, they weren't even given a name. In some big dream I might have in the future, maybe put us some kind of a headstone marker with their names on it. So first, he went to the cemetery in Fresno where the mass grave is. He wanted to see the plot. So he asked Carlos Rascón, the cemetery director, to show him. After they walked over and saw the tiny plaque in the back of the cemetery that read 28 Mexican citizens, 
Tim asked Carlos to see the cemetery's ledger of names. Surely the cemetery would have a record of who was buried there, right? But when Carlos pulled it out of the archives... It just said Twino, uh, Mexican nationals, 28 times. At this point, Carlos also wanted to find their names. He wanted to know who was buried in his cemetery. So Carlos joined Tim on his search, which led them to one more place, the Hall of Records in Fresno. That's the place that keeps all birth and death certificates. And it was there that they were finally able to get a list of names. But they quickly realized that list was unreliable. In Mexico, you usually have two last names, your maternal last name and paternal last name, and so many of them were treated as first names. There was somebody with the last name Lara that was turned into a woman named Laura. And many of the names in Spanish were turned into Italian names. So they knew right away this list was botched. The fact that they were misspelled, it kind of maybe shows a little bit of who might have been behind the pin or the books. Sure enough, there had always been a list with the names. But why didn't it make it to the cemetery? I would think that it's just, it was a very sad oversight, I would say. So there they were with an actual list of names in their hands for the first time, and it was wrong. But then, Carlos remembered that every November, on the Day of the Dead, someone came by to leave flowers at the mass grave. Someone was visiting a loved one. This was Tim's first real clue that these people were not totally forgotten. He wanted to find who that person was. So Tim put out a call on the local paper in Fresno that said, if you or someone you know is related to any of the 28 Mexican passengers who died in that plane crash in 1948, contact me. And someone did. That's coming up after the break. Okay, and uh, we'll take a break here too. Play the rest of that later in the show. So far, Tim, Tim Hernandez, the uh, Chicano writer, has decided to find out the names of those people and not leave them just being deportees. Uh, great story. Okay. Here's some poetry by Jack Kerouac and Steve Allen. I had a slouch hat top one time. I had a slouch hat too one time. The old slouch hat. I just keep walking around, he keeps walking around with me, around and around that necktie counter we went. When it rained, I wore my old slouch hat. It was a good felt that I had to carry through many rainy days, late fall and early spring. Perhaps it was a rainy day, and the house dick might saw my hat. Each tie on that ring worth six bucks. Brooks Brothers, 60 bucks worth of ties. Slacks with peculiarities. I couldn't even find a pair of slacks I thought it was suitable to wear. Wrapped one pair around me and pinned it in with a safety pin. <laughs> Pulled up my trousers and went out and looked at myself in the mirror. Oh no, those won't do. And I walked out. Wrapped the slacks around my waist. Took two other pair, went to the mirror, threw them at the salesman. No, those won't do. Good afternoon. And walked out. The slouch hat I got at Harvard Club 
Yale Club, Princeton Club, or one of the other Dartmouth Club, University Club. Always barred the Yacht Club, because it was a little over my kin. Because the doorman knew that only Mr. Astor, Mr. Vanderbilt, and Mr. Whitney belonged. He couldn't say, good morning, Mr. Astor, because he knew I wasn't Mr. Astor. I always figured a way to heal into those other clubs. Not only a member of who's who, but a who's who also have to be a member of who's who in New York in the special clique of who's. <laughs> I get in the athletic club many times. Then I'd go up in the billiard room and I would wander back around the room, hands and back, and every coat rack I backed up against the field for the wallet. One day I walked out of there with 10 wallets. Bellboy looking me over. Pretty soon a very dignified looking gentleman come up and buzzed the bellboy. He says, who? And I says, man told me his name while we're drinking at the bar and told me to meet him in this billiard room in the athletic club. I don't see him, so I best I better go. Tell me about the old slouch hat. Oh, one of my numerous trips to one of the numerous clubs in New York City. The hat finally was left in the hotel, which I had to leave rather hurriedly one night, never to return. So the hat was given to the cast-offs of the hotel, which they collect in rummage cells. May now be worn by one of the members of Skid Row, New York City, the Bowery. I seen that hat by moonlight. Yeah. I had a pointed mustache, and I mean pointed, half inch from here. Double-breasted vest and a derby hat and striped trousers, English shoes, black, very pointed. They were Hannah shoes. People on Broadway turn and look at me. The worst is yet to come. I had a paint knee with a long black ribbon to my buttonhole, and I wore a carnation, white or red. Boy, did I look like something. A year later, I got caught. I was dressed differently and everything, but boy, that mustache and that pince necks was really out of this world. I used that outfit six months. Finally had to pack it in because it was too well worn. Pince nez was in a coat I stole. Mustache I grew in the sanitarium while taking one of my numerous drug cures. My mother come to see me, she says, oh no, cut it off. I'm just having a little fun, mother. Took it on the lamb and went to Canada. Late at night, I'm full of morphine and I come down full of goofballs too. And this guy had a ventriloquist doll and he gave out this Texas Guinan routine. Hello, sucker. We like your money as well as anybody else's. As a matter of fact, the bigger you roll, the more we take you. He used to get everybody interested with the doll and cut out silhouettes, put stripes in your tie. Bond up in his room, gave him a shot of morphine. Out on the highway, I thumbed the ride into Buffalo, and I put the bum on the guy for something to eat. He said, eat in my drugstore. So we went in the back, and he had corn on the cob and boiled potatoes. Say, fella, I always hear people talk about morphine. What's it look like? He shows me. He had a key, a cabinet. He had bottles of hundreds, quarter grains, half grains, pen-upon, dilated, everything. As soon as he tended the customers, I emptied the bottles. Got out of there pretty quick, bought a safety pin in Buffalo, and took a shot in the toilet. The, the uh, parts of our nature that are torn uh, open, the wound that must not be healed, you know, in a sense is what I like to write about. But they would like to say this wound has been healed.
Therefore, we don't have to uh, even read it. We w they want to be on the side of truth without ever facing truth. Without facing they want to be on the side of virtue without ever knowing what virtue is. What will you do? Oh, sinner, what will you do? Oh, sinner, what will you do? When the stars begin to fall. <laughs> 私たちは飛行機の飛んでるのあの友達と。They were looking up in the sky, trying to spot the airplane. そしてピカッと光ったから私はふかあのふ伏せたような気持ちがします。But but and then she thought that there was a very big flash in the sky, so she put her face on the ground. I will meet you on the other side of the moon. The doctors say that they must operate. But there's no knowing what they'll find when they open up the moon. I will meet you on the other side of the moon. To die? What about in between the time you're born and the time you die? playwright who defies the calendar and is ever young. You know, God, our nature, if you like, dumps a little boy at the tick of a clock, maybe at the dawn of a day, into life, and a tick after, he dumps, he dumps a little girl beside him. So the boy and girl meet very early. And God says to the little boy, and God says to the little girl, be brave, be brave, 
and ever more be brave. In one village, we had an experience which I'll never, never forget in my life. An Indian actress recalls a visit to a village during the Bengal famine. It used to be our practice that after the show, we would come out and just appeal for whatever people could give. We used to tell them in very few words, sometimes song, extra song, and uh, we'll appeal to give whatever they could for the people of Bengal. And on one such day, in a very small village it was, after the show, when we came out in the auditorium, the, we found there was tremendous commotion. One old woman, she must be about 55 more, or 60, or she was bent, and she was dragging cow right into the auditorium. I couldn't understand what was happening. And before I could recover out of the surprise, there she came and said, take this. I had no word to say. What could I say? I said that, well, 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 and that's about all I could. All the speech or all the appeal or everything was gone, forgotten. It was the old woman who said that my child, I have nothing else to give. But take this cow, it still gives milk, you know. And you say that children are starved without milk. Please take this. I'm an old woman, I don't need very much milk. And I, Till I live, village will see to it that I don't quite starve. You take this cow with you. And she insisted on taking the cow, giving the cow to us. What could we say? We didn't want to deprive the old woman of the cow. More than that, it would have been very difficult indeed to take the cow to Bengal. Luckily, we hit on some idea and said to her, that grandma, please look after the cow for us till we are able to make some arrangement to uh, take this cow to Bengal. And it is our cow, we know. But you are just there. I mean, who can look after the cow better than you? And that alone persuaded old woman to take the cow. That was the India of that time. And we wanted to depict that India, I'm afraid. Art is very, very pale compared to real life sometimes. Very pale indeed.
your imagination was enlarged. You had a larger sense of expectation. You couldn't have anticipated that these songs could have been sung so well. Uh, on, on two levels. In the first place, you'd think just in the animal quality of the singing, uh, Caruso would hit a high note and you'd say, this is, this is as much as the human voice can do you, but you couldn't ask more of it. how that question came to be. I said, if, if Einstein is right, in due course, then, he is going to affect the other scientists, and the other scientists are going to affect all technology, and they're going to finally affect society. So I said, if that is so, why don't we look ahead? And part of when I, uh, earlier I spoke to you about a transcendental position, one of the things I said, let's go ahead and see what, what the world will be like if Einstein is right. Uh, that year, let's see, this, uh, we're talking 1935. A few months later, Lisa Meitner and uh, her associates developed the first concept of the fusion. Very shortly after that comes fusion, and Einstein then was had it. When, when they were pretty sure that they had it, was asked to go talk to Mr. Roosevelt about it. You may remember the only man who could probably convince Roosevelt of its really important aspect. The, when when it, when Einstein when fission was was developed, 
then it proved Einstein's formula to be right. The amount of energy in the various masses proved to be exactly what his formula said. Therefore, the practical applications, the first practical application was a bomb destroying a man. I, I think that no, it didn't hit people in Hiroshima as hard as it Mr. Einstein. I, I'll yeah, bet. I'm sure I think, he was. I think he was really shocked. And uh, he became really the, 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 the scientist who alone really stood up and, uh, in his last days. He did everything possible to try to make science think about its responsibilities. This institution of research and scholarship represents a spiritual bond encompassing all countries. I am grateful to all for assisting us. We have a series published in the Soviet Union of books about great people, and I just happened to read the one about Einstein. And after reading this book, it was like a novel to me. I read it day, night, day, night, until I finished it. And then I decided I have to write about this man. Soviet playwright discusses the hero of his forthcoming drama. But I want to say that the image of this great man has terribly impressed me as a human being. This man has something in him which is so humane, so superb. The idea which is guiding me in this play is his tragedy. A tragedy in the Greek interpretation of this definition. He is guilty, but he is not guilty. Моя основная мысль драматургию как актер он понимает о чем mm -hmm. я говорю сказать. The main idea by which I'm guided and uh, uh, which is actually uh, giving uh, the tragedy its sujet. Что этот человек, который пришел на землю из будущего. Is the following that this great man came to us from the future into the present. It was tragically difficult for this man to live in this uh, troubled world, divided and hostile world. I went to Princeton like a pilgrim goes to Mecca. It's an odd thing. Politics, I don't know why, but they seem to have a tendency to separate us, to keep us from one another. While nature is always and ever making efforts to bring us closer together. And the last gift that nature has given us, a very extraordinary one, a very dangerous one, a very beautiful one, 
is the atom bomb. Nature through the atom bomb says, here you are, poor of darkness, or the poor of light, choose what you wish. And mankind is going to choose the power of light. I hope that we will make the wise choice because everybody has agreed that the choice has to be made and that extinction is a possibility of our generation, the first generation of mankind that's ever had this possibility in front of it. A British writer of science fiction in a moment of conjecture. When you look out at the universe, there are 100,000 million suns in this galaxy of ours alone. And if only, say, one in ten has got planets, that may mean that to every single person on this earth, there's somewhere an inhabited world. That's about the number of inhabited worlds in this universe. One to every man, woman, and child on this earth. Well, it seems very unlikely that on many of those who want to be races that would regard us as somewhere back in the Stone Age. A superior races, you said. You mean? Well, I mean morally, yeah. intellectually, uh, philosophically, no scientifically, wars, technologically. Well, a superior race cannot have war because war is a self-liquidating activity. I'm optimistic about the outcome. Either to be, either to, to destroy himself or to be perhaps even more noble than ever, is that it? Yes. So the choice is ours. The choice is ours, and it's really a privilege to be born in this age, the most critical in the whole history of mankind. I remember the old Chinese curse, may you live in interesting times. Well, that curse has been visited on us, but I don't think it really is a curse. It's a privilege. And it could be a blessing, too. It could be. I've often wondered who would inherit the Earth. We understand that the meek may inherit the Earth. And, of course, that leaves us out. Uh, will it be mammals? Or will it be fish? Or insects? Distinguished American astronomer on the subject of man, the elements, and risk. In wondering about the future, and without actually trying to make a horoscope of humanity or of life on the Earth, I have just tried to list down sometimes what are the risks we suffer. What will eliminate man if he is eliminated from the surface of the Earth? Will it be the sun running down or blowing up, either one of those, freezing man out or incinerating him? No, because the sun's a good steady star, and as you know, is pretty well thermostated to run for, say, 10,000 million years at its present rate. So the sun isn't going to play out. How about stars colliding with us? No, they're too far apart. Collisions would happen too infrequently. Say, in the next thousand centuries, no, no chance of that. I mean, a very low chance. Well, how about the Earth getting out of its orbit and running away and freezing to death in empty space? Or plunging into the sun and boiling up? No chance. We know from our celestial mechanics that the orbit of the Earth is constant and will stay just about put. And so I think we're safe from sun, from star, from Earth. So now, must I say, that it looks pretty safe on man for this future you talk about for the next thousand centuries? Yes, no. Because he had one deadly enemy that I didn't mention, an enemy that's at his throat and may succeed in returning him to the fossils and leaving life on the earth to the cockroaches in the room.
wondered who would inherit the earth. We understand that the meek may inherit the earth, and of course that leaves us out. Uh, will it be mammals, or will it be fish, or insects? Distinguished American astronomer on the subject of man, elements, and risk. In wondering about the future, and without actually trying to make a horoscope of humanity or of life on the Earth, I've just tried to list down sometimes what are the risks we suffer. What will eliminate man if he is eliminated from the surface of the Earth? Will it be the sun running down? colliding with us. No, they're too far apart. Collisions that happen too infrequently. Say in the next thousand centuries, no, no chance of that. I mean a very low chance. Well, how about the Earth getting out of its orbit and running away and freezing to death in empty space or plunging into the sun and boiling up? No chance. We know from our celestial mechanics that the orbit of the Earth is constant and will stay just about put. And so I think we're safe from sun, from star, from Earth. So now, I, must I say, that it looks pretty safe on man for this future you talk about for the next thousand centuries? Yes, no. Because he had one deadly enemy that I didn't mention, an enemy that's at his throat and may succeed in returning him to the fossils and leaving life on the earth to the cockroaches and the kelp. You know what that enemy is, of course? That's man himself. Will there be time to find salvation? Will there be time to find salvation? of the two men clobbering each other in the quicksand in the valley uh, at the Prado is, first of all, a horrible picture, a shocking picture. After that, you begin to see it within the context of this magnificent landscape, all a silver, somber, magnificently harmonious thing. And in the midst of it are these two bloody idiots. 
and you see that if you could only get through to them somehow and tell them what they're doing and how they are denying by their very action the beauty and the harmony and the mystery that surrounds them, they're denying the fact that they're equally children of God, equally brothers, somehow they would, uh, they would recognize what Goya so poignantly makes you realize in looking at the picture. Who am I? Where am I going? What is death? Who is God? Why am I here? Here now we all ask, children ask, and the Greeks ask, and existential philosophers ask, and every thoughtful person, who am I? British scientist writes of a particular moment in his life. On a fine November day in 1945, late in the afternoon, I was landed on an airstrip in southern Japan. I did not know that we had left the open country until unexpectedly I heard the ship's loudspeakers broadcasting dance music. Then suddenly, I was aware that we were already at the center of damage in Nagasaki. The shadows behind me were the skeletons of the Mitsubishi factory building, pushed backwards and sideways as if by a giant hand. What I had thought to be broken rocks was a concrete powerhouse with its roof punched in. I could make out nothing but cockeyed telegraph poles and loops of wire in a bare waste of ashes. I had blundered into this desolate landscape as instantly as one might wake among the mountains of the moon. The moment of recognition, when I realized that I was already in Nagasaki, is present to me as I write, as vividly as when I lived it. I see the warm night and the meaningless shapes. I can even remember the tune that was coming from the ship. Yes, I'm gonna ask him. This dissertation was born at that moment, for the moment I have recalled was a universal moment. What I met was, almost as abruptly, the experience of mankind. On an evening sometime in 1945, each of us in his own way learned that his imagination had been dwarfed. We looked up and saw the power of which we had been proud loom over us like the ruins of Nagasaki. The power of science for good and for evil has troubled other minds than ours. We are not here fumbling with a new dilemma. Our subject and our fears are as old as the tool-making civilizations. Nothing happened except that we changed the scale of our indifference to man. And conscience for an instant became immediate to us. Let us acknowledge our subject for what it is. Civilization face to face with its own implications. The implications are both the industrial slum which Nagasaki was before it was bombed and the ashy desolation which the bomb made of the slum. 
and civilization asks of both ruins. Is you is, or is you ain't my baby? Let us pray. Lord, number us, we beseech thee, in the ranks of those who went forth from this university, longing only for those things for which thou dost make us long. Men for whom the complexity of issues only serve to renew their zeal to deal with them. Men who alleviated pain by sharing it. And men who were always willing to risk something big for something good. So may we leave in the world a little more truth, a little more justice, a little more beauty than would have been there had we not loved the world enough to quarrel with it for what it is not, but still could be. O oh God, take our minds and think through them, take our lips and speak through them, and take our hearts and set them on fire. Amen. Sometimes I look up, I don't have to do nothing, just stand and look up there. Now look up the wild the father when I look up the wild the father the tears come rolling down and tie a bouquet under my neck. Said, Lord, here I am. When the storm, the wind get to tossing it, tip from side to side, I call up the boss and tell him. Said, Lord, here I am. Ain't even got a shelter. Ain't even got a frame around me. You know me. Remember me here. Take care. Because I'm. Going, what is death? Who is God? Why am I here? Here now we all ask, children ask, and the Greeks ask, and existential philosophy, 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 and existential philosophy. Spiegelman. And I am Carl, not Spiegelman. We're hosts of... 
Follow us on podcast by with our acronym L W A F L M O Y T. We watch a full length movie on YouTube with you, and you listen to the podcast and yeah. watch the movie at the same right. time. Yeah. L-W-A-F-L-M-O-Y-T. L-W-A-F-L-M-O-Y-T. That's every Sunday, 2 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, or if you're Carl, 5%. Right. I'm so lazy. Three hours later, I finally get to the show, 5 p.m. Let's hear the theme song. Oh. Let's watch full-length movies. Let's do a full-minute promo. Oh, never mind. Bye. See you next are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of mutinyradio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. Mutinyradio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. Hey, Mutineers Stolowitz here. Have you ever listened to Labor and Love on Saturday mornings, 10 to noon, with Bill Morgan? It's a really excellent show, one of my favorites here at the station. Music all night. ACLU of California reminds us that we have the right to speak out. Both the California Constitution and the First Amendment to the United States Constitution protect our rights to free expression. There are many questions we face when we decide to organize and speak out. Do we need a permit? Are there limitations? Or when or when can we not demonstrate? What about civil disobedience? For all of this information, please check out ACLUNC.org. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio in San Francisco. Alex! Can you tell me what food relieves insomnia, anxiety, stress, chronic brain, depression, nausea, and can induce euphoria and stimulate appetite? I'm going to guess waffles. <laughs> that is incorrect. <laughs> Actually, Alex, the food I'm talking about are cannabis-based medicinal extracts. Cannabis-based medicinal extracts? That sounds like you're smoking drugs, Ed. No, baby. There are smokeless, safe, and less expensive alternatives. But can I use it to sleep? Yes, baby! Good! Because I'm so excited by this that I may never sleep again! And it sounds like you, Alex, may want to check out the number 4altacalifornia.com. That's 4altacalifornia.com for a non-addictive, pharmaceutical, free alternative to smoking medical marijuana. Check them out today at number 4altacalifornia.com. Safe sex is more than just avoiding STIs and pregnancy, no matter what you're into. Make sure that you and those around you feel safe, comfortable, and are having a good time. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio. Billy Bob, you ever want to be funny?
Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be, like, in front of an audience? Like, other than, like, squirrels, dogs, and dead persons? Oh, shit. From time to time, I've been giving it a thought of two. You know, if you go to joke workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes? And they'll even say nice things, dude, before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dag nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Yahoo! Four My name is Breakfast, and I'm running for Chancellor of the United States of America. For too long, we have gone without a Chancellor who is willing to take bold leaps of faith and logic to create new possibilities for our great, big, fat nation. As your Chancellor, I will balance the budget on the head of a pin, give entertaining speeches, have scandalous affairs, Write strongly worded letters to unpopular foreign leaders. Look good on camera. End all hunger, crime, abuse, war, disease, disasters, sadness, depression, oppression, repression, suppression, transgression, obsession, expression, impression, regression, and digression by signing pieces of paper that express my disapproval of such things. And... Invest in an American flag pin to be worn prominently on my stylish jackets. It's time to work together to take the country back from us and return it to ourselves. It's time to turn this country around and drive it into opposing traffic. It's time to take a chance on the Chancellor. insatiable appetite for all things in life, who scream at nothing and everything at the same time, who dance till sunup, who cause the sun to set again with irreverent bow, who rival the moon with gravitational force, who leave rooms feeling empty and earthquake struck, who don't give a fuck, who make, who do, who dream out loud and well, laugh who so draw shocking on faces who grace with logic dreams from the soul. 